Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And I want you to use your imagination this morning as we begin. I want to kind of take you on a journey, a biblical journey. I want you to picture in your mind that you are an Israelite. And you are an Israelite that's living in Egypt. You're in Egyptian slavery, you're in bondage. And your leader, Moses, has just confronted the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. And what did Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let you go. And so what does God do? God unleashes ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. The first plague was seven days of water in the Nile River turning to blood. The second plague was frogs. Third, gnats. Fourth, flies. The fifth, all the livestock died. The sixth, boils on their skin. The seventh, hail. The eighth, locusts. All these plagues coming upon Egypt. Now, if you remember, the nation of Israel was living in a special place called Goshen where they did not get to experience these plagues of the Lord. They were protected from the hailstorms. They were protected. And so as an Israelite, you got to see firsthand God's judgment against Pharaoh in Egypt. But now there's the ninth plague. What was the ninth plague? The ninth plague was darkness over the whole land for three days. Listen to how it's described in Exodus 10, 21 and 23. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. Three days of a dreadful darkness over the land that could be felt. And then before the last plague, the tenth plague, the ninth plague is darkness. So what's the tenth plague? What's the final plague? Well, the final was Passover. The angel of death, God's destroyer, would pass over. And what would happen? If the angel did not see blood, blood from a pure spotless lamb on the doorpost and lintels of the house, if that blood was not there, the angel of death would kill the firstborn son. And so... You have darkness followed by the death of spotless lambs. This is the Passover. Exodus 12, 21-23. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin 
Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the Lord was faithful to provide a substitutionary lamb and the blood of the lamb to protect from the angel of death. So in Exodus, what's the order? There's a darkness over the land that could be felt, followed by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the Lord passing judgment on Egypt. Now, let's fast forward to the Gospel of Luke. What have we seen the past few weeks in the Gospel of Luke? We've seen the betrayal of Jesus. We've seen the arrest of Jesus. We've seen the trials of Jesus being on trial. We've seen him crucified between two thieves. And this is all taking place on Passover. Thousands of lambs in Jerusalem are being slaughtered. And yet on this Friday, this ominous Friday, Jesus, the true Passover lamb, is being crucified on a cruel cross between two thieves. So now this morning we come to the culmination the crescendo, if you will, of everything that we've been looking at for the past two and a half years in the Gospel of Luke. Can you believe it? We've been here two and a half years. And it just so happens that the week before Christmas, we come to what we've been waiting for, the cross, the crucifixion, the glorious cross of Christ. Three times Pilate said, you're innocent, Jesus, I find no guilt in you. He releases Barabbas instead of Jesus. And then as we saw last week, the penitent thief on the cross said, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, let's read together these glorious words from Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. From this passage of Scripture, we see three miracles. The three miracles at the cross. Miracles that should cause us joy this Christmas. So what are these three miracles? Here's miracle number one. Ominous darkness covers the land 
for three hours. Not three days like in Egypt, three hours. Now notice what the text says. It was the sixth hour. Now according to the Jewish way of doing time, it's high noon. So from high noon to three o'clock for three hours, there's darkness over the entire land. Now some people have said, well, this must have been a solar eclipse. Not possible at that time. Passover was celebrated with the full moon. So astronomically, it's impossible for this to have been an eclipse. Some people said, well, this was a dust storm that came up. No, this was the wet season. This is none other than a supernatural act of the Lord to cause darkness over the land. Notice how Luke even describes it. I don't know if Luke understood his astronomy, but he said, while the sun's light failed, God caused the sun to stop shining. It's none other than a miracle. But let's think about the miracle. Darkness, especially in the Old Testament, is almost always associated with God's judgment. When God's going to pronounce a guilty verdict, He often announces it with darkness. Listen to Amos chapter 8, verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. On that day. In those three hours. Zephaniah 1.15 A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That day, that hour, those three hours. So we've seen in Egypt, many, many thousand years before, a dreadful darkness came over the land that could be felt, and then the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And this is playing out the same way. Darkness is coming over the land for three hours. And then the true Passover lamb, Jesus, is being sacrificed on the cross. And why is it such a dark moment? Why darkness? Because Jesus is being declared guilty. Even though he was innocent for our sin. He's going to be punished as the innocent, sinless Son of God for our sins. Now, Luke does not record the cry of dereliction that Matthew and Mark do. So I'm going to bring Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to bring all four Gospels into play here to look at these final moments of Jesus on the cross. So what does Mark's Gospel tell us that Jesus said? Mark 15, 34. At the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sekbakthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? In that darkness, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? So we have to ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be forsaken? What does it mean? It means that he's experiencing the full punishment of God's wrath against our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
Now, what does it mean to be cursed? What's this whole idea of being cursed on a tree? Well, let's think about the opposite of what it means to be cursed. What's the opposite of what it means to be cursed? To be blessed. In the Old Testament, God often talked about His blessing. Blessed is the man who walks in the way of the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what's the greatest blessing that every Old Testament saint wanted to hear? What's the blessing that often ends worship services? It's the blessing of Aaron. You know what that blessing is. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. This was the greatest words of blessing over an Israelite. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, You shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord not turn His face from you, but give you peace. Now, isn't this what we long for? Don't you want the the presence of God, the power of God, the peace of God to be upon your life? And, And ultimately, as a Christian, your greatest desire is to one day see Jesus face to face, to have the face of Christ be your glory on that day when He comes back. This is the greatest thing that any Israelite and any Christian, Israelite back then, Christian today, it's called a benediction. It's a blessing. We want the grace of God. We want the peace of God. We want the favor of God to shine upon us. That's a blessing. But what's the opposite of blessing? Cursing. Being forsaken. So when Jesus is in the, on the cross in those three dark hours, the ominous darkness that could be felt hanging there on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does Jesus hear? He hears the opposite of blessing. He hears the cursing. May the Lord curse you. May the Lord abandon you. May the Lord turn His face away from you. May the Lord pour out His wrath upon you. May the Lord give you justice. That's what it means to be cursed. It's not a benediction that Jesus experienced. It's what we call a malediction. A cursing. And Jesus is abandoned in that moment of darkness, not for his sin, but for our sin. He takes the full weight of God's wrath against our sin on himself. Willingly, graciously, generously, for those of us who do not deserve it. This is great news, because what it means is that you are free from the wrath of God. You are free from the judgment of God. You are out from that cloud of darkness that would descend upon you if you do not have Christ in your life. How is hell described? A place of outer darkness. You're free from that. Why? Because Jesus took it in your place. I hope you stop and take a breath. 
Would you just stop and take a breath for just a moment? And be amazed that Jesus suffered darkness. A darkness that could be felt. An abandonment that could be felt. A forsaking, a cursing. The wrath of God. And he did it for you. Let that sink in. Don't don't ever get over that. Let that always amaze you. So that's the first miracle. An ominous darkness for three hours. What's the second miracle? The temple curtain is torn in two. Now what is this temple curtain? There's some debate among scholars, but I believe it's the temple curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was the most sacred spot on earth where God's presence resided with the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a temple veil, there was a curtain that that separated the rest of the temple from that holiest place. And only one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into that place only on one day of the year to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, how big is this curtain? It's 30 feet tall by 30 feet wide and about an inch thick. Tightly woven with a lot of threads and fabric. It probably weighed hundreds if not thousands of pounds. Now, Luke's gospel does not tell us this, but Matthew and Mark's tell us. How was it torn? From top to bottom. It wasn't like somebody was down there with scissors and cutting it and like trying to rip it from the top, or from the bottom up to the top. No, this is another miracle. How can a 30-foot by 30-foot, one-inch thick curtain be torn from top to bottom? This is a miracle. And what does it signify? What's the tearing of the temple? Why is it such a significant thing? Well, a couple of things. Number one, it meant that the end of the sacrificial system of offering up bulls and goats and animals, that came to an end. There is no more need for animal sacrifices. There's no more need for a temple. There's no more need for the sacrificial system. That has ended. It's done. Hebrews 9.26 says this, But as it is, He, that's Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. No more need for goats and bulls and animals. Jesus did it once and for all. But what else does it mean? What's the significance, the miracle of of the temple veil torn in two? It means now that we have direct access to God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through an intermediary. We have direct access to God through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus opened up a new and living way. He gave us a new and living way to have direct access to God. And so the the writer of Hebrews says, because of that, let's draw near. Draw near with confidence. Which means that you can pray to God and not bug Him with your issues. You're never going to bug God. He wants you to draw near. You draw near to Him, He draws near to you. 
You go to God. You pray to God. You don't have to hide in fear from God. You can boldly go to God and ask for Him and and, and come to Him with boldness and assurance because your sins have been forgiven. You've been accepted by a holy God through Jesus because the torn curtain. So praise the Lord for the torn curtain. So those are two significant miracles. Ominous darkness for three hours. The temple veil torn from top to bottom. Now, what's the third miracle, you may ask? I don't see a third miracle here, Pastor Sean. Well, not so fast. Miracle number three. The salvation of the pagan centurion. This centurion probably had seen everything. He'd probably been there from the beginning. He'd seen Jesus' trial. He'd seen Jesus' beating and mocking He'd been there when the two thieves are railing at, or the one thief is railing at Jesus and people are coming by and, and they're, they're mocking him. But what does this centurion confess? What do you see in your Bible? Verse 47. When the centurion, that's a Roman soldier, Gentile, not, not, a, not a Jewish man. When he saw what taken place, he praised God saying, certainly, this man was innocent. He praises God. He worships God. And what does he say? Surely this man is innocent. Now, your translation may say innocent, but actually in the original language, it's righteous. It's more than just Jesus is innocent, which is true, but no, Jesus is righteous. He's positively righteous. He's holy. Now, why would Luke record the words that he is righteous? Where does that, where does that language come from? Well, it's no surprise it comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, the righteous suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 11, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote this, prophesying about Jesus. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus will bear our sin on the cross as the righteous one. The one who's righteous. In the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, this term is used repeatedly to talk about Jesus. Acts 3, 14-15. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now you may say, well, why is this confession of the centurion such a miracle? Why is this a miracle? Here's a miracle. Because every single one of us are born dead in sin, spiritually separated from God, and only by God's sovereign grace is anybody going to confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. This is a pagan Gentile. He did not grow up going to synagogue hearing about Jesus or hearing about the Old Testament or hearing about the the coming Messiah. This is a man who's steeped in idolatry, who's steeped in rebellion, and only a sovereign work of grace to make this guy come spiritually alive from being spiritually dead has to happen from God himself. So God performed a miracle of grace in this man's heart to turn him from cursing God to praising God. God opened his eyes to see who Jesus truly was. Before, he was probably just a disinterested man that saw this happen and could care less. 
And then he sees Jesus dying on the cross and God births faith in his heart and opens his eyes and makes him come alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he says, I'm going to worship Jesus because this man is it. It's a miracle in your heart if God has brought you to faith in Christ. God has opened your eyes. God has given you a new heart. God has overcome your deadness and sin. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, every single one of us, dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, here's the thing about this centurion. He doesn't know really all the details surrounding who Jesus was, but he had faith. I mean, you don't have to have all your theological ducks in a row to become a Christian. I'm not going to stand at the back there and give you a Bible trivia quiz, and if you pass it, I'll, I'll give you an A and say, okay, you're a Christian now. You may be here today and not have it all figured out, but the one thing you do have figured out is, I need Jesus. He's the Son of God. He can forgive me of my sins, and I want Him in my life. That's faith in Jesus. That's pretty much all the centurion had at that point. Remember, everyone else is cursing Jesus. Everyone else is cursing Jesus except for two men. A thief who says, remember me, and a centurion who praises God and says, this man's righteous. Isn't that wonderful that at the foot of the cross, a vile criminal and a pagan Gentile soldier get saved by grace? In verse 48, just another little bit of information here. The crowds were focused on the supernatural events. They, They were assembled for this spectacle. And the spectacle is probably not Jesus dying on the cross. The spectacle is probably the darkness and the temple veil turning. And they're going home beating their breasts. You see, they're seeing the phenomenon but not seeing Jesus. The centurion sees Jesus. He's not mesmerized so much by the darkness and all the the supernatural phenomenon going on. He sees Jesus. And then also, this is important, verse 49, all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, it's important that women are there. Why? Because women will be the first to witness his resurrection, which we'll get to after the first of the year. Luke chapter 8, 2 through 4 talks about who these women are. Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. And also Jesus' mother, Mary, was at the cross. So these women are there at a distance watching, but it's important <clears throat> that Luke focuses on the women because they're going to be the first to the tomb to witness the resurrection. Now these are three wonderful miracles. Darkness, temple veil, salvation of a pagan Gentile. But let's put our focus on the final words that come out of Jesus' mouth. What are his final words? Verse 46. Calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, you take this along with the Gospel of John, and we also have to include the statement from John 19.30. When Jesus had received sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So you take John and Luke together. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now what's the significance of these two things? I know you don't remember this many, many months ago, but when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what wording did Jesus use to describe the cross? Luke 9, 31. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Spoke about Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. What's the word departure? Exodus. It's no secret that Luke uses the word exodus for what Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross. Why the exodus? Well, what have we just seen? The darkness has covered the land. The temple veil has torn in two. The Passover lamb has been slaughtered. So what actually is crucifixion? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus would hang almost stripped naked, in the heat, struggling to breathe. To avoid suffocation or asphyxiation, he had to basically push himself up with his legs and his arms to keep himself alive, which would result in muscle spasms. So how you die of crucifixion is ultimately you die of either heart failure or brain damage because you don't get enough oxygen and you suffocate. So right before Jesus physically dies, he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. One word in the Greek text, tetelestai, it really means paid in full. It's been paid in full. And it's in a tense in the original language, which is very important. It's in a tense called the perfect tense, which means that it is finished. Once and for all, it is finished, and it continues to stay finished into the future. So it's the strongest way Jesus could say, I have accomplished all of the work. The once and for all, never to be repeated, payment that Jesus made on the cross. Leon Morris, who's a Greek New Testament scholar, says this, Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. This is not the moan of the defeated nor the sigh of patient resignation. It is the triumphant recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work he came to do. Jesus said in the garden just hours earlier in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus finished the work. The exodus has happened. The, the, the Passover lamb has been slaughtered on the cross. It is finished. Once and for all. But then the very last words Jesus says after it is finished is a cry of victory. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I read this earlier in our time of prayer, but Jesus is quoting Psalm 31, 5, a psalm of David. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, one of the things I find amazing, this could be a whole other sermon, how saturated Jesus was with the Scriptures that even in His dying breath, He's quoting Scripture. He just knows the Bible so well that everything He says is Scripture. 
just comes out of him. But I want you to notice how he changes the wording of the psalm. You don't have permission to change the words of the Bible, but Jesus does. The psalm says, into your hands I commit my spirit. But what does Jesus say? Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now David, although he was the king, could never call God his father in the way that Jesus alone could. Jesus commits his life into the Father's hands. Now, we need to be very careful that we make sure that we recognize that God is our Heavenly Father because there's a lot of generic God talk out there. He's the big guy upstairs. He's the grandfatherly guy in the rocking chair that kind of looks down upon heaven. Or, or maybe God's distant. He's not even uh, concerned with the affairs of human. Let me just tell you this. The greatest privilege that any of us can have is to call God our Father. And the only way we can do that is because we're connected to His Son, Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Notice how Jesus had the authority to commit his soul to the Father. Now, it's interesting. You and I don't have that authority. Anybody here want to choose when they die? No. You and I's lives are ultimately in God's hands. He chooses our destiny. He chooses our death. But Jesus here had the authority to commit his life to the Father. Because he'd accomplished the work. He voluntarily gave up his life. Yes, you and I will die. But our death stands different in the sense that we can't commit ourselves to the Father in the way that Jesus did with the authority that he had. Because remember what Jesus said back in John 10. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. So what is Jesus doing when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? What Jesus is saying is that I have full confidence, Father, that this isn't the end. That in three days you're going to spring me from the tomb. I'm going to rise again. I believe I'm going to be victorious over death, so I'm committing myself into your hands, Father, because I believe the promise that you're going to raise me from the dead. I'm trusting you, Father, with my life. You know, that's what true faith says. True faith says, Father, into your hands I commit my life. I'm trusting you, I'm trusting in Jesus, your son, to forgive my sins, to wash me clean of my guilt, to grant me new life. I place all my trust in you. And so here's the question. Do you have the same assurance that Jesus had that when he committed his hands into the Father, the Father would take care of him? Do you have that same assurance? Do you have that same assurance that when you breathe your last, you will be with Jesus in heaven? Do you have that assurance? There's a lot of people that don't have that assurance. You know, we don't like to talk about death a lot, do we? Maybe when you go to a funeral or a memorial service, you think about death. But for the most part, we push death out of our minds we don't want to think about, especially when you're younger. Last thing you're thinking about is death. We need to think about death because it gives us confidence that Jesus has victory 
over death. You know, I was reading a sermon this week from Charles Spurgeon, and he made an interesting statement. He says, it's a good thing for Christians to visit cemeteries from time to time. Take a walk through a graveyard. When's the last time you walked through a graveyard? Here's what he said. It's greatly wise to be familiar with our resting place. Visiting cemeteries is a healthy thing for us to stand at the brink of death and to walk amid the memorials of the dead, for this is where we all must go. Hey, living men, come and view the ground where you must shortly lie. And, as it must be so, let us who are believers welcome it. Do you welcome death? Are you convinced that God will save you on that day? Will you be ready to say on that day, whenever that day is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, my life is in your hands. You know, that was Paul's prayer. In 2 Timothy 1.12, listen to what Paul said. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. And here's what he says. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. I know whom I believed. It's Jesus. I know he's going to guard it until that day. The day that I die or the day he comes back, I'm in his hands. I believe it. I'm fully convinced of it. So what if you're here today and you're not sure? What if you're not fully convinced? What if you don't know in your heart of hearts where you're going to go when you die? What if you have an unsettledness in your heart about death? Well, you can leave here today with confidence because for three hours... Jesus experienced the darkness that you should have experienced. You can leave here with confidence today because the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, giving you access to God through Jesus. You can leave here with confidence today because if God can save a rebellious pagan centurion who had no clue about Jesus, he can do the same to you through faith in his Son. You can leave here praising God the way the centurion praised God. Having your life changed from the inside out, having all your sins forgiven, you can say, truly, Jesus was the Son of God, a righteous man. I praise Him. You see, Christmas is ultimately about the cross. You see, there may have been three miracles at the cross, Three miracles at the cross, okay? The, the darkness, the temple, veil, torn in two, the centurion's salvation. Those were three miracles at the cross, but the greatest miracle was the cross. That was the greatest miracle of all time. So let's, this Christmas, take a deep breath and stand amazed because Jesus died on that cross. Why? So you could be accepted, you could be loved, you could be forgiven, and you too could call God your heavenly Father. All because of Jesus. Christmas is ultimately about the cross. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's go 